Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we're actually sitting, which is a little odd for us because usually we do a lot of these via the phone or Facebook or FaceTime, I should say, at NYU with two special guests, two lovely ladies, Dr. Diane Simeone. Thank you, Diane, for joining us today, and Jessica Everett. Thank you both. We're delighted to be here, Dino. Yes, live. thanks, Dino. We're live. Well, we're recorded. We're not live, but we're <laughs> live here in person. So thank you guys for carving out some time to talk to us today. Diane, I know you've been on the podcast before talking about more about pancreatic cancer. And I think we... we dealt, and surgery. I think yeah, we talked we went, a lot really about Yeah, we really went into like Whipple and mm-hmm. surgery and stuff. But today, we're excited to share the great things that you guys are doing here for the pancreatic cancer community, not just here in New York, but for all over the world, really. I, I, I hate using the word country because I think what happens here in the United States really impacts worldwide with the disease. Would you say that that is correct, Diane? I think that's the case. I mean, clearly pancreatic cancer is a disease that affects people around the world, but I would say as far as a concentrated effort of researchers and clinical trialists, probably the U.S. is really you know, putting in a large amount of the effort out there. And I'm gonna keep you on the spot here. I would have to say that New York has now become the epicenter for this disease. Would you disagree or agree with that statement? Well, I think we have valued colleagues around the country, but I will say that we have had a significant influx of expertise in pancreatic cancer at um, academic institutions in New York City, which gives us a unique opportunity to work together to Uh, tackle this disease um, in this um, lovely environment. I think there are key things that need to, um, the only way they're going to be effectively tackled is by groups of us working together and that's that's what the next era is going to be in pancreatic cancer. Uh, Significant uh, transformative changes by uh, all of us working together in a unique but important way. So sharing, collaborating, and I I I know I, I kind of half-kiddingly said that, that New York is the epicenter, but I do think with your coming, you came from University of Michigan along with Jessica here to NYU to help build what we have helped support here now at NYU. And you already had Daphna, you brought Dr. Oberstein over from Columbia. Columbia has a very robust program. Mm-hmm. You've got Chabot, you've got a bunch of other, Ken Olive in the research, Memorial Sloan Kittering, was I here no one can see this but as i point up north uh here in manhattan you've got memorial sloan you've got dr o'reilly you've got a bunch of other clinicians and researchers there and then cornell which i believe is south from here as i point over diane i think like or that way yeah that way (laughs) yeah um just got manny hidalgo you've got dr allison ocean you also got some other clinicians um, and there's also some other people here in the city, not necessarily associated with some of the bigger institutions that have some things going on for this disease as well. So, and I do agree. I mean, there's some great scientists and doctors, clinicians mm-hmm. all over the country, but I think there's a very high concentration here within, I mean, what's Manhattan? I think five square miles or something yeah. like that. So we recognize that. In fact, we've all been talking about setting up a New York City pancreatic cancer coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, with the goal of striving for excellence, uh, not on focusing on competing against each other. There's a a lot of that happens in academia, one health system versus another. I think we can rise above that. Uh, And I think if our goal is always to how to best care for our patients, that keeps everybody honest. And that is the goal of all the new leadership in um, uh, uh, pancreatic cancer that's flowing into New York City. That's awesome. 
And on that, that's a great segue. So talking about our commitment here, the big grant that we made in the fall to help get the center started and to give you guys a boost in terms of what you guys are doing here. So we do want to talk about that. So let's talk a little bit about this quote unquote early detection surveillance clinic and where the pieces kind of fit in. And we've got Jessica here. She's just not going to nod her head the whole time. We want to get some <laughs> feedback from her. So let's talk about it from what is the clinic and what are you guys, what's the ultimate goal, first of all? Well, maybe I'll start, but I, I will say, you know, Jessica has been a key part of it. And um, I, I uh, have recognized um, just by interacting with Jessica and other colleagues in genetics that there was an underappreciation of the contribution of genetics to pancreatic cancer. And in coming here, we act, I, I asked if we could have a de dedicated genetic counselor for our clinic. And I do think we perhaps have the only clinic in America that has a dedicated pancreatic cancer uh, genetics counselor, though Jessica has a very strong background across all uh, of oncology. Um, the premise of the clinic um, is to really, uh, and this is, again, the early detection portion of our multidisciplinary pancreatic cancer center, but it's really to uh, better understand who is at risk um, to enroll people in screening programs and, and to save lives. Um, we also want to uh, deeply study every patient so that we can better um, define risk modeling to help develop an and validate an early detection blood test. Um, you know, there's a lot of unanswered research questions about who's at risk for pancreatic cancer, you know, can we modify that risk? And we want to position ourselves along with our colleagues around the country and the world to answer uh, these key questions. And I would add that um, I think one of our major goals is to really help um, patients who are concerned about their family history of pancreatic cancer know that A, there are things that we can do, and B, help them figure out where to find that. So I think um, in talking with patients and families, and we, we figured out, again, as, as Diane mentioned, we started a couple of, we've worked together for many years, but started a couple of years ago, really a targeted effort to say, let's do genetic testing for all of our patients with pancreatic cancer. Um, we had a, a pretty good appreciation of the fact that um, there was not robust collection of family history. So you would see these things sort of published about there isn't family history, but what I was finding is you'd go into the chart and realize they're just nobody had bothered to ask the question. So we really made a, a solid effort to try to make sure that we were collecting an accurate and detailed family history beyond, you know, I think what you were getting was, do you, is, does anyone in your family have pancreatic cancer? Yes or no, but not a full appreciation of the, the spectrum of cancers that we can see in some of the inherited syndromes. Um, but then also recognizing that a, an absence of family history didn't necessarily mean that there wasn't a genetic risk factor that could be relevant. So I think we've pushed hard to identify at-risk relatives by doing testing in patients with pancreatic cancer, but then also dealing with the second problem of, um, and Dino, you know this from talking to patients and families out there, that there are, are many people who are seeking information or have anxiety about their family history, but either have asked a doctor who told them 
there isn't anything that you can do. Um, or they don't know where to go. Or they're afraid to ask the question. And so I think um, the other piece that we're really trying to focus on is getting the word out to patients and families that, um, that we're here for specifically that purpose, to help you assess risk and to give you some guidance about what things we can do to try to um, get to answers for early detection and really try to improve the outcomes. So, so I want to jump in here before, sorry, Diane. So for the listeners at home, someone might be sitting there and going, okay, so That's me. who <laughs> is at risk? And let's define that, I think, is important. And both mm-hmm. of you guys can can jump in here. Is So we are pancreatic cancer specific, but as if we have talked, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean like the BRCA gene, for instance, you've got breast cancer. So someone may have more of a breast cancer on their family and maybe a male or possibly female might be at risk if they have that BRCA mutation for pancreatic cancer. So who is really at risk here? When we talk about the population as a whole for our listeners at home, and it may not be just the obvious, correct? Correct. And the other message that I try to give people is if you have a question about your risk, then you should ask us. And we're always fine. You know, it's not a bad day at work for Diane and I if we get to tell somebody, actually, your risk maybe doesn't put you in a category where you need to be screened right now. That's an okay outcome, I think, um, and helps to relieve some anxiety for people. So generally speaking, um, you've got a group of patients who have what we call familial pancreatic cancer, which means there are two or more people in the family who have had pancreatic cancer. And for that strict definition, at least two of those people have to be first degree related to each other. So that means a parent and a child or sibling combination. Um, having said that, we have a lot of families that where there are two or more people in the family that don't quite hit that bar, and those are still families where we will have a conversation about, okay, there's enough cancer here, and how closely connected is it to you, and let's talk about what that means to you. And then the other group of patients are people who have uh, a gene, a genetic risk factor that we identify through testing, either in the person with pancreatic cancer or we have a pretty um, a growing, I would say, practice in people who come in who are unaffected where we do genetic testing to sort out this exact question. So that would include the, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, as you mentioned, but the list is longer than that. So it includes Um, families with Lynch syndrome, which is inherited colon and uterine cancer, and in families that have Lynch syndrome with a relative with pancreatic cancer, then we should be talking about surveillance. Um, It includes families with hereditary or familial melanoma, where there is a mutation in a gene called CDKN2A, and those are families where screening is recommended. Um, It includes families with hereditary pancreatitis, which is a rare but important cause of um, pancreatic cancer risk. And then there are a couple of genes that have been more recently connected. One, the ATM gene that I don't know if we've mentioned that one already. um, And another one called PALB2, that's P-A-L-B2, which is a partner and localizer of BRCA2. That's how it got its name. And so that's another one where... um, we know that there's risk for pancreas cancer and we offer screening. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, from a personal note, this all kind of hit home to me a number of years ago where I saw um, a young man, he was 45 years old in the clinic and he had um, 
had a melanoma excised. He had had three family members with melanoma, and he was under, you know, routine health care, and no one had ever raised the possibility of there being a syndrome in his family. And he came in with a pretty aggressive pancreatic cancer that we downstaged and I resected. Um, a lot of positive notes, and he ended up dying maybe about four or five years later. And uh, we really connected. He was a basketball coach. I was a college basketball player. He would always, uh, you know, he had told me I'd looked up my stats from the <laughs> 80s. He was a beloved person in his town in Cadillac, Michigan. And it just made me realize that, we're, you know, uh, physicians aren't just aren't paying enough attention to this because if I had heard that history, I would have told him, you need to be in a screening program. Now, it's very interesting because I just recently, um, and this was the first time I wrote a lay piece, if you will, but I wrote a piece that was recently published in the New York Times about um, early detection and screening because I think there's a lot of nihilism out there about this. And the truth of the matter is there is data now that people who are uh, appropriately being screened that if something is found, it's usually found early, it's often resectable, and the resectability rate if a tiny cancer is found can be as high as 90%, which is a big difference from what our current number is, which is about 15%. Now, it's very interesting, and I don't typically read this, but it was brought to my attention, you know, the blog after that, you know, there's a lot of comments, even from physicians, you know, why bother screening? It's never going to work. Well, yes, if you don't believe change can never happen, yeah, we can all put our head in the sand and say we don't have the data in hand now. But the truth of the matter is we do have data that screening can be effective. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are lots of patients who I think heard that message and I think reached out to us and, and colleagues around the country that are now asking questions and getting enrolled in screening programs. So I always joke with my patients, I want to put on the back of my card the statement, knowledge is power, because we're all empowered by understanding um, these things in uh, greater depth. And then we can make the appropriate personal decision for ourselves whether screening is or is not uh, the right decision. I would also just add to that, I think um, we've had a couple of patients come to us who um, really were had already talked a doctor out in the community into doing surveillance, um, but really wanted to be part of something bigger. And I think I want to stress that point as well. Uh, you know, Diane mentioned um, we have some data, but I think it is fair to say we need more data. And if people are participating in a screening and surveillance program, um, it really is beneficial to everyone if they're doing that at a center that is tracking that data and sharing that data with other centers so that we can learn something from every patient that's participating in a clinical program um, rather than having it sort of, you know, one-off here and there out in the community. And I feel pretty strongly about that. I, I, we always tell our patients we can't solve this problem of pancreas cancer without us working together. And if we don't study patients, and in, in the setting of early detection, it's usually, a, you know, we're, we collect uh, blood uh, for research, but you know, there are also, uh, there's research we do on trying to advance imaging and diagnostic modalities. But if we're not really studying patients in this context, then we're not gonna advance our understanding. And I think this is a, and actually our patients are very uh, interested in engaging in that. Um, but I think that's an important point that Jessica uh, makes. 
I think something that I just heard from both of you, though, is to ask. And I think yes. that's where I think, um, and I'm going to beat up the physicians a little bit here, um, the physician world is, I think, and I don't know, and I've always said this, and when I went through my own personal experience with my dad, and I always, someone just called the other day, and I said, you have to become the biggest advocate for yourself, because if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's, clearly, I mean, I think every ultimately every doctor's goal is to save people. I truly believe that. And so I know there is kind of like, hey, you've got to see as many patients so you can help that many patients, right? I hope. Um, but then there's also the financial demands of it from a hospital standpoint, institution standpoint, let's put it that way. But I, I, I think just go back to just asking those questions. So if people are listening and they don't feel comfortable with the response that they get, you got to ask that question or you've got to find someone who's going to give you the answer that makes you feel comfortable yes. enough. And you said, hey, yeah, you might have gone to another center. You might be in someone listening might be in what they call surveillance at another institution. But are, do they feel comfortable enough that they are getting the treatment and the response and the answers that they are looking for? Because there are other centers like here of course. Mm -hmm. where we are doing more. I say we because we are involved mm -hmm. in this. And there's other centers, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I just wrote down collaboration yes. and some of the, the other things that we're doing here with, with other partners throughout the country. And so I, I think that the biggest thing I, I take away from what was just said is just ask. Yes. Just ask those questions. So if there is a concern. And the other thing, too, and you've mentioned you've had families come in where, you know, you've had brother, sister, siblings that are all positive. The one that's negative for the gene mutation ends up getting the cancer, yeah. right? So there, there's been cases, so there are some of these unknowns. Now that's not probably the majority of the people, right? But right. there are some unknowns, but I think knowing is better than not knowing and knowledge is power. Yep, and we only get there by by tracking it. And, and I should add to that, uh, you know, when I say make sure your data is being counted at a center, we certainly have patients who say, okay, um, you know, my doctor out here three hours or six hours away is ordering my imaging, but I want you to ha I want you to be keeping track of it. So we yeah. do some mm -hmm. of that too, where we're sort of partnering with um, an outside physician and, you know, but again, just making sure that we're that we're learning from that yeah. screening that's being done, that it's not out there in a vacuum. Right. And we have lots of patients that have siblings around the country. Right. And so, you know, it, this is all about getting people plugged in where there's proper expertise. Um, and that kind of segues a little bit into, you know, the, the grant um, that we got from Project Purple, which was to develop a larger scale high risk consortium. And I think this is going to be a, a transformative opportunity for our field to really get at these issues in a much larger scale. And what happens currently is, you know, every center has, you know, a set number of patients they follow, let's say it's 100 or something like that. But some of the questions we need answers to, we can't find those answers just in small numbers of patients. We need to study a larger cohort and also follow patients over time. So um, the um, funds that Project Purple provided are to establish an international consortium, and so far we have 25 centers on board to longitudinally follow um, high-risk individuals and answer, you know, make the case, you know, screening saves lives. Um, better understand what risks are. One of the examples that I, I give is we can have two families come in the clinic uh, with the same 
germline BRCA2 mutation, and one family will have uh, a number of people that have had pancreas cancer in their family, and the other family will have none. So what is the difference in um, uh, those families? I mean, there's, there's probably um, modifying influences in regions of the genome between genes that we have not really dug into yet. But by building such a consortium as we've talked about, we have the opportunity to study a lot of different things of, uh, about individuals at higher risk, germline genetics, how do we more effectively communicate to patients so they understand what the heck germline testing is? Um, are there, uh, we find more women, I mean, anecdotally, it does seem like more women than men follow through and get their screening, you know? Um, do you think that's because, and I don't mean to jump in here, yeah. but do you think women are more conditioned? Because this is like a conditioned response, if you think about this, right? Like yeah. not to get like really, uh, psychological on everyone here but you know women are if we look at screening if we take even a step back you look at breast cancer mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. years ago when they instituted having you know yearly checkups and having mammograms mm -hmm. and you know um, and other you know uh, having pap tests you yep. know mm -hmm. so males there never. really has never been anything, right? Other than like colonoscopy. And now I think the target is now down to 40. It used to be 50. So that was like the big thing. When you turned 50, you had to like get yeah. knocked out and have this very invasive, uh -huh. crude, you know, procedure. And, and all males feared this. I remember right. my dad fearing the yep. colonoscopy, right? And people would put it off. But, you know, now we know that that works, right? Yeah. That that has done major things for that disease so do you think though from just going back to more females versus males like it's almost like they're conditioned to having those types of diagnostic testing which we know that type of surveillance does improve life expectancy that they're more open to the idea yes. of like hey this is just commonplace we do it for our breasts like why not i think it's two things i think that is definitely part of it that you're right that women are sort of, you know, from your teens, screening is part of your life, right? Um, but I think the second piece where we could potentially make a difference is I think um, we have perhaps undersold the message, especially for BRCA carriers, that it's important for men too. So I think the emphasis on breast and ovarian cancer makes sense and is Correct, yeah. critically important, right? So the risks are quite high for breast and ovarian cancer, but I think somewhere along the line, um, with the focus on breast and ovarian cancer, we have sort of lost the, no, there are things for men too that make a yeah. difference. And I just anecdotally, in my clinical experience over the years, mostly I would see men for testing who had daughters, right? So they would come in yeah, to learn their yeah. status, not really for themselves, but because they wanted the information for their female children. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, there are some things we could be doing as a community to remind the, the women BRCA carriers that we see that, you know what, the men in your family who maybe haven't bothered to be tested, there really are important medical things. And it's not just the pancreas, it's prostate cancer as well, right? Yeah. That BRCA carriers who are men get earlier and more aggressive prostate cancers. And that that's um, a, you know, maybe a message that was not as emphasized as it could have or should have been. I think that it's like, I just made a note, and we've been saying this, is like screening saves lives. Yeah. 
you know, and I think this, like, if we peel back all the layers of what we are attempting to do here is screen for pancreatic cancer. And it's no different than what, and I'll pick on breast cancer, what they did for breast cancer, screening saves lives, colon cancer, prostate, yep. other can you know, melanoma, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting, though. There, there's still an incredible amount of nihilism out there, um, not just by lay people, but by physicians. Oh, we'll never be able to do that. And yeah, if you put your head in the sand and well, say- no one's ever done it, right? Yeah, so, like, so let's be the ones who do it. And that's I what mean, we're attempting to you do. Know, uh, we were talking earlier, if we can land on Mars, I think we can figure out a way to effectively screen for pancreatic cancer. Now, of course, it's important for people to realize we're not saying everyone should be screened. Right. You know, when I wrote that piece in the New York Times and, and I was, you know, someone alerted me, there were like 250 comments in the blog afterwards. <laughs> so I read them and... Diane, you're not supposed to read any comments. Like that's like the, the rule of thumb, like any athletes, celebrities, they don't read their comments. They don't watch their movies. Well, I read something the other day, like, or I saw Samuel Jackson on 60 Minutes and he talked about like, dude, the guy answered, like I asked, like, hey, do you ever watch your movies? He's like, hell yeah, I watch my, you know, the yes. Samuel Jackson. Like, <laughs> he's like, why wouldn't an actor, he's like, that's so stupid when someone says they don't watch their movies. Like, don't they want to get better? And I was like, that's well, that is, that's yeah. exactly right? the point. So I wanted to, I wanted to see the points that people grasp and the, the points that people didn't. And, you know, there are a number of comments like, you know, the good Dr. Simeone seems well-intentioned, but, you know, it's not practical to screen all of America. And I think, and that's not, that's what, not what I said, yeah. but maybe I, I didn't say it clearly enough. Um, there's also a lot of ranting about the healthcare system in America, and this is something that only wealthy people can afford and other people can't. I mean, an important part of accumulating data is actually to help change guidelines. Yeah. So, for example, you know, three to four years ago, we started, and this was through a research collaboration, getting germline testing on all our pancreatic cancer patients and realizing 15% of people had a germline mutation. That's uh, not a trivial number. Those are individuals that we want to test family members and understand who's at risk. And of course, data has been collected by colleagues of ours around the country to support that. So with that data in hand, and uh, uh, with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, we now have official guidelines that were published in November that say that all patients with pancreatic cancer should be considered for germline testing. And that means that the insurance companies should be, you know, put in a position where they have to pay for that. That helps everyone. Um, that is what we're about, is to try to garner information that helps all patients um, but to do that, research needs to happen. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's something that I, I will say here to our audience. I think uh, the media provides people an opportunity to get on uh, and say things that they probably normally would not say on social media, for example. Like people will go out to social media and say certain things about screening. Now that's, that's bogus or that's hoax. You know, that's not going to work. But in a, in a realistic, in a practical setting, no, it, it actually does, you know, and, and taking certain things out of context, I think, can be easily happen. So I think you're beating yourself up a little bit, Diane. <laughs> so I, I think like, uh, I, I mean, listen, we believe in it. And I think the I think the majority of the people out there, I think 
there's certain venues out there where people are going to have the ability to say certain things, unfortunately, that we can't police. And my mom would always say something like, you can't fix stupid, right? And so <laughs> wise words. it's our podcast, so I can say that, you know, and if I offend anyone out there, well, so be it. I don't care. I think a lot more people got the message than didn't. I, that was I my agree. impression. I agree with that. And I mean, if you just take colon cancer uh, as an example, you know, we've had a dramatic change in mortality from colon cancer and you know we do have better uh, therapies for colon cancer and breast cancer but really big changes in those diseases are based on screening so to say that we can't uh, figure out how to effectively do screening for pancreas cancer I think is is um, underestimating what we can achieve absolutely. together absolutely if you set a low bar then you'll Yes. Right? I think it's better to set a high bar and shoot for it than uh, set a low bar. I've um, I've given a couple of talks recently, and I've added this quote on my last slide, and it's actually from Bill Gates, and it says, people often overestimate what they can accomplish in a year, but underestimate what they can accomplish in 10. So I think if we set, give ourselves enough time and map out a strategy, I think we can figure out how how to do this. And, you know, the goal here is, of course, we're working very hard um, as a research community to come up with more effective therapeutics, but we need to partner that with really pushing understanding how we can more effectively screen people. And, you know, part of the mission with this large-scale cohort is, is not only early detection, but can we actually be ambitious enough to think about prevention? So we know that we can genetically engineer mice to develop pancreas cancer. And we know in the laboratory we can treat them with certain agents and actually markedly delay and and in some cases prevent the development of pancreas cancer. So if we can do that in mice, can we be brave enough to think about um, instilling prevention strategies in humans? But you need to have a large enough cohort that statistically powered enough to be able to do those studies in an impactful way. So the, the amazing part about the Project Purple funding is to establish this platform, this cohort of very um, engaged high-risk individuals that will help us figure out how do we validate an early detection blood test? How do we think about prevention for people who are at risk? There are a number of things that can be done, um, even aside from um, thinking about, you know, what's our new, you know, aspirin or statin or, you know, drug that we think could prevent pancreas cancer, um, you know, targeting smoking, you know, we know smoking promotes pancreas cancer, obesity, type two diabetes. I mean, when we see patients in the clinic, we say, you know, you got to keep the weight off. Um, that's a big part of it. Um, if in studies in genetically injured mice that are engineered to be obese, or if you just overfeed mice, what happens to their pancreas is they get this low level of inflammation and that provides soil. So if you get one cell that wants to misbehave, it's a soil that is much more fertile and allowing that cell to grow. So I think there's a lot of messaging we can have uh, to individuals that are at high risk uh, beyond, you know, we need your blood to, you know, study you, but what are strategies you can personally embark upon to mitigate your own personal risk of pancreas cancer? It's fascinating stuff. It's good stuff. So on that note, how do families and how do people get involved here 
because we're talking about NYU, and I know you guys have a couple of resources. Well, one resource mainly, and Jessica, I don't know if you want to talk about that on how. So, if there is someone listening mm-hmm. that you know they haven't gotten the right answers from their primary, and it's usually a primary care. Um, I find right. in most cases, um, if they have a family link or if they feel like they need to find more answers, what's the best resource or best way they can get involved in what? you guys are doing here yeah sure so one of the things and i think what you're talking about is the the web tool that we have designed so um one of the things that we put together to try to address this question is a web-based tool that you can find on our uh, early detection website page the link is at the bottom of the page after you sort of read through some information about the early detection program maybe go ahead and say what it is so people could write it down we'll have to I don't have it on the top of my head. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So once you uh, click the link, it will ask you some questions about your health history and your family history. It shouldn't take more than maybe 10 minutes tops to complete it. And at the end of that, it will give you some feedback about potentially what your next steps could or should be, including if you sort of tick enough of the boxes asking you, uh, you know, there's enough here that we probably should have a conversation. Do you want us to contact you or here's the phone number and contact information for the clinic and let's um, let's figure it out. So some people will have enough boxes ticked that we would say you're a candidate for screening and we absolutely should have you come in. More often, I find um, is a group of people where it's like, this is close, but we have a few more questions to really sort out the details. But, you know, let's do it if you're interested and either contact us or, or give us contact information and we can follow up with you. And then, of course, another group of patients who end up um, not really ticking any of the high risk boxes. And then they get some feedback that says, you know, we don't necessarily need to do anything right now, um, stay tuned and uh, things may change over time. And I want to um, just uh, make a shout out to the Rolf Foundation, yep. Jim Rolf, because that um, this um, risk assessment survey was funded by a grant by the Rolf Foundation, which is based in Chicago, who are also very committed to early detection. And this tool is something that we help develop, but our goal is actually to share it with colleagues around the country so that it can be used much more broadly um, to help patients have um, um, you know, something easy uh, they can access at their fingertips. Our goal is actually to make an app, um, uh, if we can get some funding to do that and, and have something that people can just readily do that in the comfort of their own home. Assess risk. I'll also add, you know, sort of coming back to comments that that you get. Um, it's probably important to point out that this is it is specifically a risk assessment tool designed to find people who have familial risk factors. Uh, you know, so occasionally we'll get the sort of oh, uh, you know, it's not like a general all risk factors sort of thing. It's not meant to be that. It's designed specifically to look at family history risk factors. Um, And we ask questions about the modifiable risk factors like smoking um, and diabetes, Um, but it's specifically designed to look at family history risk factors. Um, The other thing is it is specifically designed to find people who might benefit from genetic counseling and testing. That is the goal of what we're trying to do. Um, So, uh, you know, occasionally we'll see that sort of comment too, like, it looks like this is just to funnel people to genetic counseling. Well, yeah. That's, that's sort of well, the, that's point, the point, right? Yeah. That, that's why we built it, to, to uh, help people 
figure out is genetic counseling something and genetic testing something that they should consider. Yeah. And it's also geared to help alleviate concern, right? Correct. So if someone is, is not um, at sufficient risk to warrant screening, we want to, to let people know that so their fears are alleviated. Um, I think, but though, if we peel back this whole thing, I mean, we don't, no one knows what causes pancreatic cancer, right? But we do know there's 15% of people that have the disease have some sort of genetic mutation. So if we know that this portion of the population that have these genetic mutations, for our listeners at home here, follow me, that if we could follow those people and put them in surveillance, we know we're going to save lives. We're going to save lives. We yeah. know that screening saves lives. We're going to screen these folks. We're going to monitor them. We know statistically for all those naysayers out there that the earlier that we find a disease the probability of life goes up dramatically so if we get someone at stage one compared to stage four they have a much greater chance of living and having a better quality of life so what we are trying to attempt to do is identify that population so that this thing works right right and i want to also make a comment um because there's a lot, you know, every time we do something um, in the clinic, we do a risk-benefit analysis. And when we screen people, I just want to get the message out there for people to realize we're not just taking patients that we see a little something to the operating room willy-nilly. All of these patients that are in screening, if any abnormality is seen in their imaging, we do a very... Uh, detailed, careful analysis, always in the context of a multidisciplinary clinic, because we always want to weigh the risk of surgery in a patient that we find something versus the benefit. So there is a lot of thought given to intervening in these patients, um, which we recognize, right? We want to make sure that we don't increase risk by uh, inappropriately intervening. And I would also add um, to the point of, you know, finding people who need screening, the one of the additional benefits of identifying genetic risk factors in some of these families is they need screening beyond their pancreas. So we've had a couple of patients where we found a BRCA mutation where they came in specifically because of a single family member with pancreatic cancer. And we found a BRCA mutation. And so, as we talked about before, breast and ovarian cancer are much higher risks in those patients, even if there's not an obvious family history. And so we identified people who needed other things besides screening for their pancreas that will make a a big impact um, in their lives. Awesome. So last question. For someone who is not on the internet or doesn't have access to the questionnaire, what's the best way? Or if someone says, hey, like, I'm not, I've already done genetic testing, but I want to learn more with what you guys are doing. How can they reach out? And what's the best way of them connecting with what you guys are doing here in the clinic? So phone number for the clinic, is that what you're looking yeah, for? Absolutely. Yeah, So um, the phone number to the clinic is 212-731-5655. And that will get you in the door. And then they can triage from there um, to figure out, you know, is this a person who needs a clinic appointment or just needs to have a chat with uh, myself or with Nila De La Rosa, who is the coordinator for the clinic. Um, and sometimes we can just resolve it, you know, with a, a couple of questions over the phone and other times we can figure out, oh, this is a person who really should come in for a conversation. Yeah. But our job our job is to alleviate uh, fear and concern and to provide knowledge. So 
our feeling is anyone who has questions, we're here to help them. Um, so we try to make things as easy as we can for patients to get the information they need. Awesome. Agreed. Well, we are going to share the links to the questionnaire when we put this podcast out publicly. So for those listening at home, just click on the link uh, for this podcast to get to the questionnaire. And anyone in the country, anyone in the world can take the questionnaire, correct? Mm -hmm. Like this is not just limited to the New York City tri-state area. It is not uh, specific to New York. And uh, there are very qualified um, pancreatic teams around the country um, and, in fact, uh, most of them are involved with the uh, consortium that's being funded by Project Purple. So we uh, don't hesitate to take the questionnaire, and we can always connect you with experts in your area. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us on another great episode of the Project Purple podcast. And that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.